If you're a sports fan, and I suspect you probably are if you're listening to a sports podcast like this, there is bound to be a certain year or a certain season which stands out for various reasons. Maybe because your favourite team won the league or your favourite player had a standout year. Or maybe it's because there were so many amazing moments spread throughout the year. 1998 may seem like a random year to base an entire episode on, but as we go through the season, you'll see why it's truly one of the most underrated seasons in F1 history. If you don't know much about this particular year, you're about to. Sit back, relax, and let's take a trip down memory lane. It might be a long one. I normally try to keep these things to roughly 30 minutes or so, so I apologise if this goes over. But anyway, let's get started. I'm Rob Manafield, and welcome to F1 Everything, Episode 3, 1998. To give you a little bit of backstory heading into the 1998 season, let's head back to October 1997, the European Grand Prix at Jerez in Spain, the final race of the season. It was Michael Schumacher versus Jack Villeneuve for the World Championship. Schumacher went into that final race weekend of the season as the favourite. The qualifying session for that race was something special as well, because unbelievably, Villeneuve, Schumacher, and Germany's Heinz Harald Frentzen all qualified with the exact same time. Like literally to the thousandth of a second, a 121.072. Honestly, that is bonkers. Villeneuve took the pole position though, because he had set the time first. Schumacher started second for the race, and Villeneuve's teammate Frentzen was third. Off the line, Schumacher jumped the French-Canadian and led the way. Even through the pit stops, Schumacher remained in front. It looked likely that Schumacher would win the title. But on lap 47, it happened. Villeneuve was considerably quicker than Schumacher and made his move at the end of the back straight under heavy braking. Schumacher attempted to close the door slowly on Villeneuve before he outright slammed it shut, smashing his Ferrari into the Williams side pod. Schumacher slid into the gravel trap and into retirement. Villeneuve continued. Come the later stages of the race, Villeneuve realised that there was no real point in fighting the charging McLarens of David Coulthard and Mika Hakkinen, as he only needed third place to take the title. So on the last lap, with Coulthard being instructed to let Hakkinen through to challenge for the win, Villeneuve slowed and let the Finn through, and the Scott as well, taking that third place and securing the World Championship. All of this resulted in Mika Hakkinen taking his first ever Formula One victory. As you'll see throughout this episode, it wouldn't be his last. Nineteen ninety-eight saw new technical regulations. Slick tires were replaced with new groove tires in an attempt to slow the cars down and increase safety. And the cars were much narrower going from being 2 metres wide to now 1 metre 80. Whilst that doesn't sound like a lot, go and look at a picture of a 1997 car and a 1998 car side by side. There is a drastic difference. 
This presented a whole new challenge for the teams. As all the cars were unveiled and the pre-season testing began, it was clear that McLaren's Adrian Newey had designed a monster of a car, and everyone else was left playing catch-up. Some say it was the best McLaren since the incredible MP44 from 10 years ago. The Ferrari F300 was also a considerable improvement from the car of the previous year, but the times didn't really show it. The fans were in for a fascinating season. Now what I'm going to do is go through each team and their driver lineup and give a little bit of background for each team heading into the season. I'll keep it as quick as I can. Let's start with Williams. Williams and Renault's long-time partnership had ended for 1998, and instead, Sir Frank Williams had acquired Mechachrone engines, which weren't brilliant, let's say that. Their driver lineup was unchanged, with world champion Jack Villeneuve and Heinz Harold Frentzen leading their charge. Ferrari had retained both Eddie Irvine and the controversy-ridden double world champion Michael Schumacher. Now, you might have wondered what happened to Schumacher after the incident in Jerez. Well, he was disqualified from the driver's standings. Frentzen technically finished second that season, and Schumacher's name was stricken from the record books, but he was allowed to keep his race wins, but scored no points for them. How strange. He was also told he would need to be involved in the FIA's road safety campaign, something Schumacher said he would have done anyway, regardless of whether it was a punishment or not. Benetton had one of the youngest driver lineups in Formula 1, with Giancarlo Fisichella and Alexander Wurz, and, like Williams, had acquired a Mechachrone engine. They also switched tyre supplier from Goodyear to Bridgestone, and had high hopes heading into the season. McLaren Mercedes also switched tyre supplier from Goodyear to Bridgestone, and were quick to complement the durability of the Bridgestone tyre. They also just happened to have designed an incredibly quick race car, as I've mentioned before. Hakkinen and Coulthard went into the season as the favourites, and some even said that 1998 would be like 1988, with the team completely dominating. Jordan Mugen Honda desperately needed a good season this year. The shareholders and the sponsors were getting more and more impatient. Also, Damon Hill joined the team, partnering the younger of the Schumacher brothers, Ralph, despite declining an offer from McLaren. That's insane! Moving on to Prost, Prost had switched engine supply with Jordan for 1998 and now had shiny new Peugeot engines at the back of their new car, and had Olivier Panis and Jano Trulli as their driver lineup. Sauber Patronus, no, not the Patronus from Harry Potter, whatever, had signed veteran Jean Alesi from Benetton for 98 and retained Johnny Herbert, and with a combined total of 248 starts, they were the most experienced driver lineup in Formula 1. Arrows had finished driver Mikasalo and Brazilian Petro Diniz behind the wheel of their car, and the black livery on this Arrows, I swear to you, it is gorgeous. Go check it out. So Jackie Stewart's Stewart Grand Prix team were entering their second season in Formula 1 and had young Brazilian Rubens Barrichello and Jan Magnussen as their driver lineup, and Ford engines in the back of their car. After Rubens' incredible second place at the 1997 Monaco Grand Prix, the Stewart team were hoping for bigger and better things in 1998. Ken Tyrrell's Tyrrell team were entering their final season. They had been bought out by Craig Pollock's British American Racing for 1999, or BAR as it had become known as. 
A team which would then become Honda, which would then become Braun GP, which would then become the Mercedes team we know today. Japan's Toro Takagi and Brazilian driver Ricardo Rosset were the driver lineup. Heading into Ken Tyrrell's final swan song. And lastly, Minardi bunged a Ford engine in the back of their car, and Shinji Nakano and Esteban Tuero were at the reins of it. That proved to be a difficult car to drive, let's say that. So those are the teams and the driver lineups. So without further ado, let's get into the season. Round one, Australia. Melbourne's Albert Park was the venue for the Australian Grand Prix, the opening round of the season. The questions from pre-season testing would be answered as the new cars took to the track in anger for the first time and the early pecking order could be established. Turns out everyone's prediction of McLaren being the quickest straight away would turn out to be right on the money. Hakkinen and Coulthard would lock out the front row with Michael Schumacher down in third for the race, more than seven tenths of a second adrift, which wasn't the most encouraging thing to see if you were a fan of the red cars. Off the line, Hakkinen led Coulthard into turn one and everyone else scrambled around behind them. Early on, Schumacher's Ferrari engine gave up the ghost, causing him to pull over on the pit straight, the German slamming his steering wheel out of the cockpit in frustration. Not an ideal way to kickstart your title charge. In fact, unless you were in a McLaren, this was a torrid day overall. Mecca and DC would actually lap the entire field. That is frightening speed. However, late in the race, a miscommunication between the pit wall and Mecca Hakkinen caused the Finn to come into the pits for no reason, dropping him to second. However, with just a few laps to go, on the pit straight, DC slowed down and let his teammate back through. You see, both men had made a gentleman's agreement before the race, stating that whoever made it into turn one first would then go on to win the race, and DC stuck to this agreement. He also recognised that Mecca had lost the lead through no fault of his own. Some would argue that they had essentially planned the race result from after the first 10 seconds of the race, but I call it good sportsmanship from DC. The McLarens crossed the line in first and second, with Frentzen and the Williams finishing in third, Irvine in the other Ferrari fourth, while champion Villeneuve in fifth, and Britain's Johnny Herbert in sixth in the Sauber. Not the most eventful of opening rounds, but if you were a fan of McLaren, it was a proper throwback performance by the team to the days of old. Heading into the Brazilian Grand Prix round two, many people wondered just how had McLaren made a car which was so fast? The answer would soon be apparent in the build-up to the race in Interlagos. You see, the McLaren had a highly innovative third pedal. Whilst each of a car would just have two, the throttle and the brake, the McLaren had a second brake pedal, which would allow the driver to use either of the rear brakes separately. Essentially, this made the car an absolute beast in the braking zones and out of corners. Ferrari staged a protest against this brake setup, and some of the smaller teams would then join them, stating that it was more of a steering assist than a braking assist, though I would argue it was more to try and rein in McLaren as much as they could because it was clear from Australia that they were potentially going to run away with it completely. And with that, this amazing new idea was banned from the Brazilian Grand Prix onwards, despite being declared legal by the stewards beforehand. It's a bit shady, if you ask me. 
In a weird bit of irony though, the McLarens would go on to dominate the entire race weekend. Hackenden and Coulthard locked out the front row again, but it was Frentzen and the Williams in third and Schumacher down in fourth. The race again, it wasn't the most memorable, as both McLarens would finish way ahead of the field. Third place would go to Michael Schumacher, who was a whole minute behind them. Who needed that third penalty? Alexander Wurtz in the Benetton would finish in fourth, Frentzen in fifth, and Fizzy Keller in the second Benetton finished in sixth. There really isn't much to say about this one really, so I'll move on to Argentina. In what would be the final Argentine Grand Prix, McLaren had pole position once again in Buenos Aires, the tight technical circuit for round three of the season, but this time it was David Coulthard who was quickest in qualifying, with Michael Schumacher alongside him, Ferrari's first front row start of the year, with Mika Hakkinen down in third. Off the line, DC led away, but Hakkinen got the jump on Schumacher, and for the opening part of the race, the German couldn't find his way past the Finn. However, under acceleration out of a slow corner, Michael squeezed past Mika and was quickly on the back of DC. At the same place, the same corner, David made a mistake and slid wide. Schumacher saw the open door, and DC rather rudely slammed it shut, but the Scot came off a lot worse, and his day would only continue to get worse from there as he spun. With Schumacher going on to have a relatively calm race by comparison, despite a trip in the gravel down at the first corner of the track as it started to get a touch damp as spits of rain came down near the end of the race. DC would get tangled up with Villeneuve, causing the French Canadian to retire, but DC was able to continue. And near the end of the race, a third collision of the day for David Coulthard with a Lacey would cap off a woeful day for the McLaren number no. two. His teammate would go on to finish second and split the Ferraris on the podium, with Irvine coming home in third. But the day belonged to Michael Schumacher, taking his first win of the season. The relief was evident in the Ferrari team after the race, and I would say the fans in general. If the first two races were to go by, it was going to be a long season. But Schumacher, in an inferior car, showed the field how it was done. In fourth place, again impressively, was Verts in the Benetton with a lacy fifth, and despite his terrible afternoon, David Coulthard rounded off the top six and scored a point. Round four, San Marino at Imola. It was always a popular race with the locals, as they got to see their beloved Ferraris in action. The fans are out in force on this hot spring day. On pole was David Coulthard once again, but this time Hakkinen did join him alongside him, and Schumacher was third. Not a lot happened in this race until lap 17, where Mika Hakkinen was forced into retirement with a gearbox issue. There was also concern for DC's car in the closing stages. Schumacher and Coulthard were separated by 21 seconds, with 14 laps to go, and Michael was setting fastest lap after fastest lap. DC was leading, and with one lap to go, and McLaren slowing in front of him, he was only six seconds ahead of Schumacher. But Michael didn't have enough time to make a move. Coulthard crossed the line to win his first race of the season, with Schumacher only four seconds behind. Irvine was third, finishing off a good day for the Tafosi. Villeneuve, Frentzen, and Alesi rounded out the top six. The San Marino Grand Prix was noteworthy for a couple of reasons. One, it was the last race of the monstrosities called the Sidewings. 
Imagine, if you will, a small wing attached to the side of the Formula 1 car by either one or two pieces of carbon fibre. Whilst they could actually provide an aerodynamic advantage, Eddie Jordan, for example, was quite vocal about how they were actually giving a good amount of uh, improvement to the car's performance as they were struggling with their car. They were ugly and hindered drivers' vision substantially, and they were pretty dangerous. In Argentina, for example, a lazy side wing was ripped straight off the car in the pit lane by accident. Understandably, they were banned by the FIA on safety grounds. And the second reason why this race weekend is notable is that it was Mika Hakkinen's 100th Grand Prix. Not the best race for him, but it's worth mentioning. The Spanish Grand Prix Round 5 was taking place at the Circuit de Catalunya for the 8th year in a row, and the fans would be treated to, well, not the world's most exciting race. McLaren locked out the front row as per usual, and Schumacher was third as per usual, a full one and a half seconds slower than Hakkinen. Oh dear. And just a random fact, Ricardo Rosset in the Tyrrell became the first driver that season to fail to qualify for a Grand Prix, via the dreaded 107% rule, where a driver had to qualify within 107% of the pole position time. Rosset missed out by less than one tenth of a second, but still, failing to make it on the grid because you're too slow? Double, oh dear. The race is only really noteworthy for a couple of things. One is Michael Schumacher speeding the pit lane and having to fight hard after a stop-go penalty to take a distant third place come the flag. The second thing was the battle between Ferrari's Eddie Irvine and Benetton's Giancarlo Fisichella. Heading into turn one at over 200 miles an hour, Fizzy went to the outside and attempted to squeeze the Irishman out, leaving him no room and both drivers were off into the gravel. Fisichella was beyond pissed off, let's say. Hakkinen won this race with ease, with Coulthard second and Schumacher third. But, who had been pushing hard for a podium spot, was demoted to fourth. Impressively, Rubens Barrichello and the underpowered Stuart Ford finished fifth, and Villeneuve finished sixth. Moving swiftly on. Monaco is still to this day regarded as the jewel in Formula 1's crown, the most historic and important race on the calendar. And as the F1 circus rolled in for round 6, everyone was watching the McLarens to see whether they would win the race or not. Hakkinen and Coulthard predictably locked out the front row, but it was Fisichella and the Benetton in third this time, with Schumacher and the Ferrari down in fourth. As the race got underway, the McLaren sped off in front, leaving everyone else trailing behind, but Hakkinen was much quicker than Coulthard. In fact, he left the Scot for dead. Now, Monaco is well known for not being an easy place to overtake, but it can be done. you just got to stick your elbows out. But Eddie Irvine proved that this was the case. Barging down the inside of Frentzen into the Lowe's hairpin, the slowest corner in Formula 1 at just 20 miles an hour. Frentzen bounced off the Ferrari and into the wall, ending his race, but Irvine got the place, albeit unconventionally, and continued. Then on lap 17, David Coulthard's Mercedes engine failed dramatically coming out of the tunnel, ending his race, highlighting the reliability worries many had with the Mercedes engine. Mika was in his own little world out front, despite slight contact with the barrier at Ras Cass. Now, the highlight of the race came for a dogged fight between Michael Schumacher and Alexander Wurtz as they tried to negotiate traffic. Schumacher was behind the Austrian, 
and made a great move up the inside into the Lowe's hairpin. There was slight contact between the two on the exit, but Vert's got a great exit and was on the inside heading into the next corner and got back through. Michael had another go into Portier, only this time the contact between the two was far more severe. Michael actually thought he'd broken the rear suspension, so pitted his Ferrari and got out of the car. Michael Schumacher's Monaco Grand Prix was over. Or was it? Ross Braun amazingly instructed Michael to get back into the car, as it was not as badly damaged as initially expected. Michael rejoined the race only it was two laps down on the leaders, but anything can happen at Monaco, he might score some points. But this situation wasn't the worst thing to come from the Schumacher-Wurtz battle. The Benetton driver came crashing out of the tunnel, tyres flying everywhere, bodywork broken and the car came to a stop after a head-on, albeit not especially heavy impact with the barrier at the harbour chicane. He was fine though, which is the main thing. Schumacher's dreadful day ended with, the, with last lap contact with 6th place Diniz and the German lost his front, ring, front wing, dropping him to 10th place. Hakkinen, however, was untouchable and finished the race 11 seconds ahead of Benetton's Fizzy Keller, who scored a brilliant second, despite a somewhat violent spin at Ras Cass. Irvine dragged the second Ferrari home in third. Tom Walkinshaw's Arrows cars had an incredible day, with Mika Salo finishing in fourth and Petro Diniz in sixth, with reigning world champion Villeneuve surviving the carnage to finish fifth. Mika Hakkinen would later describe this as being one of the three best races to win at along with Silverstone, added in Indianapolis a few years later. It was perfectly controlled from the Finn all day long. He now led the championship by 17 points to his teammate, who was on 29 points, and Michael Schumacher had 24. And to cap off this amazing weekend for Mecca, around this time, he got married to his longtime partner, Aria, though they were divorced 10 years later. I'm trying to add some romance to this mix. Come on, give me a break. The Canadian Grand Prix had a tendency for being dramatic, and as you'll hear, this race was no exception. In fact, this race was absolutely balmy. Nothing balmy about the front row though, predictably, the McLarens had locked it out. But this time it was Coulthard on the pole position, Hakkinen second, with Michael Schumacher third. As the lights went out, Hakkinen got a poor start, and Michael jumped him into second. This race wouldn't last long though, as Verts came steamrolling to turn one, making contact with Alessi, causing his Benetton to flip into a spectacular multiple roll. Alessi, Truly and Herbert were also involved and the race was red flagged as they cleared the mess. As the race got on the way for a second time, Hakkinen got an even poorer start, though this was because his gearbox had failed immediately. The Finn had a box full of neutrals and everyone had to dodge the McLaren. Michael Schumacher was hindered quite badly by the Finn actually, and dropped behind Fizzy Kello into Turn 1. His brother Ralph, however, decided to steamroll into Turn 1 as well, completely out of control, and spun his Jordan in front of everyone, causing a second multi-car collision between Alessi and Truly. The safety car was deployed as the stationary cars were cleared. Not before Schumacher made an amazing move on Fizzy Kello at the Casino Hairpin to take second place. Irvine, through all the carnage caused by Ralph Schumacher's spin, has sustained a puncture and pitted for repairs, starting an amazing comeback. 
Several laps after the restart, Petrol Diniz spun his arrows and as he rejoined the track, kicked up massive clumps of dirt and mud and sent it all over the track, which resulted in the safety car being deployed again so the marshals could clear it all up. On lap 17, the race would be turned completely on its head as the second McLaren of Coulthard slowed, resulting in McLaren's only double retirement of the season thanks to a failed throttle linkage. And off went Schumacher to an easy win. Or did he? A lap later, Salvo absolutely smashed his car into the barrier on the run down to the casino hairpin, spreading debris everywhere. A few laps later, Frentzen Williams is found beached in the gravel trap at Turn 1. What's going on? In this case, Michael Schumacher had made a pit stop and come out, and for all, intent and, all intents and purposes, forced Frentzen completely off the road. Though I would argue the Ferrari driver was honestly not able to see the Williams as he came out absolutely alongside him. This would result in a 10 second stop and go penalty for Michael Schumacher. And unlike these days where you can just come in for your routine pit stop and just sit there for 10 seconds before anyone does any work on the car, Michael had to make an additional trip to the pits and sit in his pit box for a whole 10 seconds, which in F1 is a lifetime. The safety car was called out for a third time Fizzichella was now leading, with Canadian hero Jack Villeneuve now in second. At the restart, the Williams driver made a desperate move into Turn 1, only to miss his breaking point by miles and go skating across the gravel. Hero to zero in one move. This reckless move ruined his afternoon. He then collected a Minardi straight afterwards just to add insult to injury. After Michael served his stop go, he was far behind Fisichella in the Benetton and now had to deal with Damon Hill in the Jordan who was running in second. Things got tasty in a hurry. At nearly 200 miles an hour, the two battled on the run down to the final chicane, where I say battled actually. What I actually mean is Damon Hill practically committed attempted murder on Michael Schumacher. Michael followed the Jordan in the slipstream and as Damon defended to the right, Michael then went to the left, only for the Jordan to block him completely as he moved across. Michael then frantically darted over to the right to avoid a collision, only for Damon to move again, causing Michael to take evasive action and he got the move done on the Jordan by slightly missing the chicane. I would say it was a 50-50 split when it comes to adhering to the rules by both men. Damon broke the rule on moving more than once to defend his position, but then Michael did technically cut the corner to finish the move. But hey, Hill would then retire later in the race with an electrical problem. Fisichella pitted from the lead, giving Schumacher the lead, who went on one of his typical Schumacher-esque stints. He would become famous for, setting fastest lap after fastest lap, and after his final stop, Michael came out just in front of Fisichella, and things at the front would not change from there. Michael came home to take his second win of the season, and Fisichella came home for his second second place in a row. With Irvine, despite the puncture and everything happening around this time, weathered the storm and finished third. Who would have thought after barrel rolling his car on the opening lap that in fourth place would be Alexander Wurtz? What a performance! Both Stewarts of Magnussen and Barrichello would round out the top six. But despite this result, Magnussen would be dropped for France from the team in favour of Jos Verstappen. Recognise that name? Man, what a race. What a truly underrated Formula 1 race. And with neither McLaren's finishing, it allowed Schumacher to truly get back into the title fight.
The French Grand Prix had always been a happy hunting ground for Michael Schumacher, having won there in 94, 95 and 97. He was looking to make it four times, and on this hot summer's day in central France, he would get his wish. He would line up second on the grid alongside Mecha Hakkinen, who was on the pole. Coulthard was third. As the race got on the way, Hakkinen darted off and pulled a big lead straight away, but the race was red flagged due to the stalled Stewart of Verstappen. Mika's second start wouldn't go as well, and he was jumped immediately by Michael Schumacher and Eddie Irvine. Mika would have an average race, which included a spin at the final corner whilst trying to pass Irvine. DC's race would be much worse though. As he came in for his second pit stop, the fuel hose refused to work. He sat in his pit box for nearly 40 seconds and not a drop of fuel went into his car. He had just enough fuel to do another lap to allow the team time to sort the situation out to try again. He came in a lap later and again sat in his pit box for what must have felt like an eternity until finally the fuel hose got in. Essentially, the mechanism which locks the fuel hose from releasing fuel until it's placed into the car at the pit stop had jammed. Not exactly ideal. Michael Schumacher would come home in first place after an easy afternoon's work, but who would finish second? Irvine had inherited second after DC's fuel problems and was under massive pressure from Mega Hakkinen, but Irvine held on. For the first time since the Spanish Grand Prix in 1990, Ferrari had finished first and second. What a day for the team. This would help Michael out in the championship as well, as the further two points had been taken off Hakkinen. Villeneuve, Wurtz and somehow David Coulthard rounded out the top six. The momentum was now with Ferrari. As the Formula 1 circus headed to Silverstone, would that continue? On a typically grey and miserable Sunday afternoon, usual British summer weather really, Silverstone would play host to one of the wettest races of the modern era. In fact, I would say that there was no way this race would take, take place these days. The conditions were just that bad. Hakkinen was on pole from Schumacher, with world champion Villeneuve in third, a good effort from the Williams driver, who was looking to make it three straight wins at Silverstone. Off the line, Coulthard would pass the Williams, but the real winner off the line was a Lacey in the Sauber, who jumped from 8th to 4th. On lap 5, DC demoted Michael of 2nd place and the McLaren sped away at the front. Ralph Schumacher, in the Jordan, who had started last due to a technical infringement in qualifying, was slicing his way through the field. So was Irvine, after a poor start. However, British hero Damon Hill spun out of his home race on lap 14. Eddie Jordan's team had so far not scored a single point all season, and Silverstone, with Damon Hill, was going to be the best shot yet. The second Brit, Johnny Herbert, also spun out of the race, only this time it was because he was instructed to let his teammate Alacy through under team orders, but he lost the car whilst doing so. He wasn't happy, let's put it that way. The rain then came pouring down. I say rain, a tidal wave hit Silverstone. Seriously, it was ridiculous. As the leading McLarens made their second stops, Hakkinen went from intermediates to full wets, but for whatever reason, McLaren kept DC on intermediates. More and more rain came down and at Abbey Corner, DC spun out of his home race. Not a good day for the Brits, and David was rightly a bit annoyed with the team for the decision to fit different tyres to his car compared to Mika. Everyone was now struggling for grip, as Wurtz, 
Villeneuve and Nakano all spun but rejoined, and even race leader Mika Hakkinen spun. Coming through bridge corner, the ultra-fast right-hander Mika spun at high speed over the gravel. He was lucky to continue with only some minor M-plate damage to his front wing. The race officials had seen enough, and the safety car was deployed, and Hakkinen's near 50-second lead was gone. After the restart, Mika went off again under pressure from Schumacher, giving the Ferrari driver, who had been nowhere all day, up to that point, the lead of the British Grand Prix. It looked like that was it for the race. But then, with only a few laps to go, Michael Schumacher was awarded a 10-second stop-and-go penalty for overtaking under yellow flags. Michael responded to this by putting in some insanely fast laps, and on the last lap of the race, he took his penalty then. It's the only time a driver has won a race whilst being sat in his pit box. He had pulled enough of a gap to come in, take his penalty, and ensure he crossed the line before Hakkinen did. Confused? Yeah, try watching this at the time. Michael's pit box was after the start-finish line, so he had won it quite comfortably actually, but no one knew for sure who had won the race. Ferrari had actually exploited an error made by the stewards, who had informed them too late in the race that they had us to serve a penalty. So they decided to take advantage of this and, you know, do the penalty on the last lap. I mean, there was no rules to say they couldn't do that. It was all a massive mess, and unsurprisingly, it hasn't happened since. But Michael Schumacher was declared the winner and took a hat-trick of wins for 1998, Canada, France, and now Silverstone. Hakkinen was second and Irvine was third. Burtz, Fizzy Keller, and despite starting at the back of the grid, Ralph Schumacher finished sixth, giving Jordan their first points of the season. It wouldn't be their last either. Michael was now only two points behind Mega Hakkinen at the halfway point of the season after nine rounds. And in the Constructors' Championship, McLaren were only three points ahead of Ferrari, 86-83. to 83. It was setting up to be an incredibly close second half of the season. At the A1 ring, now known as the Red Bull ring, would see the first wet qualifying session since the Belgian Grand Prix in 1994, where Barrichello took pole position in the Jordan. Wet qualifying sessions around this time especially tended to be a bit of a lottery, and there was no exception to this one, as Fizzy Keller in the Benetton scored his first pole position, with a lacy second on the grid in the Sauber. Hakkinen would start third, and Schumacher fourth. The other notable position was 14th. That went to David Coulthard, oh dear. Off the line, Hakkinen took the lead and Schumacher took third, with cars crashing into each other at turn one. At the second turn, there was even more cars crashing into each other. Coulthard would get caught up in it and lose his front wing. The safety car understandably was deployed, and on the restart, Michael quickly passed Fizzy Keller and started an intense but short battle between himself and his championship rival. On the run down to turn three, Michael braked late, but completely messed up the move, allowing the fin back through. Great stuff. But Michael would then make a mistake, a silly mistake to be honest, and he went off at the penultimate corner, losing his front wing as he bounced over the gravel. He would then do a full lap before pitting for repairs. Hakkinen was pretty much out on his own from this point untroubled. Coulthard and Schumacher and Michael were both on crazy comebacks, with both finishing second and third respectively. Irvine finished fourth, Schumacher Ralph fifth, 
and Villeneuve Sixth. Aside from the opening lap carnage, there wasn't a whole lot to this race, so I'll move on. But before I do, remember at the beginning of the episode, I mentioned Br British American Racing and how they were entering in Formula One for 1999 as they'd been bought out Tyrrell. Well, they'd signed a driver. No one of much profile. Only the bloody world champion, Jack Villeneuve. You know, no biggie. The German Grand Prix at Hockenheim would be one of the worst Grand Prix weekends of Michael Schumacher's career. Until it's come back anyway. He spun during first practice, had an engine problem in the second practice session, and this lost track time caused him massive problems in regards to setting up his car, and he would only qualify ninth. Predictably, Hakkinen and Coulthard locked out the front row, but Villeneuve was third. That would end up being the top three in the race, which was only noteworthy due to Mika Hakkinen having a fuel issue. Essentially, McLaren were worried that Mika didn't have enough fuel to finish the race, but again Villeneuve was chasing them all the way to the flag in what would be the best performance of the season. The race ended with Hakkinen on top, DC second and Villeneuve third. Damon Hill scored his first point of the season in fourth, Schumacher Michael battled his Ferrari to fifth, and his younger brother Ralph came home in sixth. That momentum, which was with Ferrari after Michael's hat-trick of wins, was now well and truly gone. It was all with McLaren, and there was seemingly nothing Michael could do about it. And with Hungary coming up, a tight and technical track which would suit the McLaren to a T, surely nothing was going to change. Now, the Hungarian Grand Prix should have been dull. McLaren locked out the front row, Schumacher was third, no place to overtake, etc, etc. But Michael Schumacher made this race great. The race did start off that way though, the McLarens were in front and Schumacher was third. In fact, after the first round of stops, Michael was now fourth, stuck behind Villeneuve and overtaking was nearly impossible. It was time for Ross Braun, the technical director at Ferrari, to perform a piece of racing wizardry. He decided to switch Michael from the customary two-stop strategy to a three-stop. It would give Michael some clear air and boy did he need it. To make this strategy change work, Michael needed to do over 20 laps at a certain pace. He essentially needed to do over 20 straight ultra-fast qualifying laps in a row. I feel only a few drivers in F1 history could have done what Michael did that day, but Michael did it with time to spare. It is honestly an utter joy to watch him hustling his Ferrari around this tight technical track. It's almost like the car is on rails. He even went off the track at the final corner at one point, but it didn't cost him a whole lot of time. With this incredible pace, Michael would have overtaken both McLarens they came in for their second stops. Michael now needed to keep that pace up to pull up enough time to maintain the lead after his third stop. Hakkinen, meanwhile, would suffer from technical issues, which slowed his McLaren considerably, and he dropped to sixth. Michael made his third stop. Had he done enough? Yes, he bloody well had. He had five seconds in his pocket over Coulthard in second. What an incredible stint. Absolute magic. If you are probably thinking I'm being too dramatic, but seriously, what Ross Braun and Michael Schumacher pulled off together on that day was nothing short of a masterclass. You can see why this partnership would go on to be completely dominant in the early 2000s. In fact, to add insult to injury for Mika Hakkinen, Michael lapped him. After 77 amazing laps, 
Michael Schumacher took the chequered flag and won one of his best ever races. Coulthard finished second and Villeneuve scored his second third place in a row. Damon Hill finished fourth for Jordan, Frentzen was fifth, and as I said, Hakkinen dragged his McLaren to sixth. On the podium, it was clear that Michael was relieved that he'd managed to win. With Mecca only scoring a point, he was back in the title hunt, only seven points behind. Now we head to Spa. The 1998 Belgian Grand Prix is regarded as one of the best races of all time, so I hope I do it justice. Over the course of the weekend, the weather was as unpredictable as ever, but during some dry running in practice, reigning world champion Jack Villeneuve wanted to try and take the infamous Eau Rouge flat out. To those of you who don't know what Eau Rouge is, imagine a goddamn mountainside with a racetrack running up it. Okay, maybe it's not that bad, but it's bloody steep. Anyway, Jack attempted this in his not-so-brilliant Williams and had an almighty shunt at the top of the hill. He was lucky not to be injured. He and his BAR teammate, Ricardo Zonta, would try the same thing a year later in 1999, and both would go on to have equally as bad an accident each. An expensive day for team owner Craig Pollock. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. I just thought I'd, you know, raise that as well. Hakkinen was on pole position with David Coulthard second. Shock horror. Only this time it was Damon Hill in the Jordan in third, pushing Michael Schumacher to fourth. Race day was met with rain. Also shock horror for Belgium, and these conditions would play on multiple roles during this race. Off the line, Hakkinen led the field, but Damon Hill had a horrendous start. Villeneuve, however, had made an epic start and was right behind Hakkinen out of La Source, the first corner. What happened next is still regarded as the biggest multi-car shunt in Formula 1 history. Coulthard kicked up his rears and went crashing off into the barriers. This caused what could only be described as a domino effect as car after car after car came crashing in, one after the other after the other. Out of the 22 cars that started, 12 were involved. Yes. 12 over half the field. It took the marshals an hour to clean the track and on the restart they'd be busy as well. Hakkinen led off the line but Damon Hill made an insane start from third and took the lead on the short run to turn one. Schumacher went around the outside of Hakkinen and as the Finn attempted to squeeze Michael out he kicked up his rears and spun the car. He was then collected by Johnny Herbert Sauber. The championship leader Mika Hakkinen was out after just one corner. The second McLaren was also involved in an early coming together with Burtz and dropped way down the order. After the safety car came in, Schumacher was right behind Hill and into the bus stop at the end of the lap, got a clean move done on the Brit to take the lead and he sped off into the distance. Hill maintained second and Ralph Schumacher climbed his way up to third. It looked like it was going to be Michael's day. He desperately needed to win this race. He was now lapping back markers, and as the next car to be lapped happened to be David Coulthard, Jean Tort, Ferrari team principal, actually went down to the McLaren pit wall just to ensure that his driver would get past without any issues. Coulthard slowed to allow Michael through, but the German 
unsighted because of the spray, slammed into the back of the McLaren. His left front tyre was sent flying. Some say that tyre is still flying. Michael made it back to the pits on three wheels, hilariously beating four-wheel Coulthard back and retired from the Belgian Grand Prix. What we saw next was pure, unadulterated rage from Michael Schumacher. He stormed out of the Ferrari garage and headed straight to the McLaren garage. He went right up to David Coulthard and yelled, and I quote, and I'm sorry for this particular piece of language, if you want to cover your ears, do so now. Are you trying to fucking kill me? A man pretty mean-looking member of the McLaren team stood between Michael and DC, preventing anything physical from happening, and Michael stormed off. He looked close to tears. He was that angry. McLaren would actually get Coulthard back out into the race to see if there were any points to be had. He wouldn't score any, though. Through all this drama, Damon Hill and Ralph Schumacher were now racing each other for first and second, with the young German being the faster of the two. It was incredible. But with the weather not improving and with people still continuing to have issues, Fisichella, for example, would have a particularly nasty crash with Nakana at the bus stop, not too dissimilar to what happened between Schumacher and Coulthard, Damon Hill made a critical radio call to the team. I'm going to put something to you here, and I think you better listen to this. If we race, if we two race, we could end up with nothing. So it's up to Eddie. If we don't race each other, we have the opportunity to score first and second. It's your choice. Realising that his life's ambition of winning a Formula 1 Grand Prix was potentially right there for the taking, Eddie made the clear team order for his drivers to hold station. Ralph was not impressed, and it took him a long time to respond on the team radio to Sam Michael to the instruction. As the two yellow Jordans crossed the line to finish first and second, Eddie Jordan was beyond elated. After one of the most dramatic races of all time, Eddie Jordan's seven-year journey to the top step of the podium had been fulfilled. The emotion was clear. This would be Jordan's first of four Formula One race wins and Damon Hill's last. But I would argue it was his best. Alessi would finish an amazing third for Sauber as well. Frentzen, Diniz and Trulli would round up the top six. Only eight cars finished this incredible race. The Italian Grand Prix was an absolute must-win for Michael Schumacher. He did everything possible in qualifying, taking his first pole position of the season. Villeneuve took second in the Williams, and Hakkinen was third on the grid. However, off the line, Michael made a horrendous start and dropped from first to fifth by turn one. The McLarens led the way, as you'd expect. Michael quickly got back up to third and after two McLaren switch places because DC was on a different strategy to Mika, Michael was putting his title rival under huge pressure. 
However, on lap 16, Coulthard's engine blew up coming out of the flat curve at Grande. Hakkinen and Schumacher entered the smoke completely blind. Mika actually took the grass temporarily to avoid any potential collisions. As they entered the va uh, Variante della Rogia, Hakkinen defended his position but compromised himself into the second part of the chicane, giving Michael the better exit. They sprinted to the first Lesmo side by side, Murray Walker on commentary screaming, Schumacher's going for the lead at the Rogia and he's right up alongside and he's going through. Fantastic! Hakkinen fights back! This is magnificent! And Michael was through. The Tafosi were besides themselves. They were... This would stay the order until only a handful of laps to go. Hakkinen spun his McLaren at the Rogier. It looked like his race was over. He spun violently back through the gravel. Somehow he kept the engine going and continued. He would then drop to fourth place as, get this, he couldn't use his brakes. He was slowing the car down with the gearbox. How? Just how? That's incredible. Irvine would slide past Hakkinen to take second, and Ralph Schumacher would take third. At the flag, Michael took the win, followed by his teammate and his brother. What a day. Hakkinen finished fourth, Lacey fifth, and Hill sixth. Heading into the final two rounds, both Michael and Mecca were on 80 points apiece. As they headed to the Nürburgring for the Luxembourg Grand Prix, it was all to play for. Who would win? Schumacher or Hakkinen? The question on everyone's lips at the Nürburgring was who was going to Suzuka in Japan with the upper hand? After 14 races, the Drivers' Championship was tied. Something had to give. Qualifying saw Michael Schumacher secure pole position for the second race in a row, with his teammate Eddie Irvine alongside him in second, with Hakkinen third. Could Eddie act as somewhat of a rear gunner for Schumacher in the race? Off the line, Irvine actually took the lead from Michael, but after a small mistake at the final chicane, Michael quickly took the lead back from his teammate. Michael needed to sprint off into the distance whilst Eddie needed to hold Hakkinen for as long as possible. Under breaking into the same chicane, however, Mika got the move done and went on an absolute charge to try and catch Schumacher. The pit stops would prove to be critical. Michael came in first, seven seconds ahead of Hakkinen, and Mika upped his pace even more. He was driving like a man possessed. Michael was held up in traffic after his first pit stop, which didn't help, but as Hakkinen came out of the pits after his first stop, Michael was right there, but not close enough. Mika now led the race. What would take place now is a pure battle of stamina between the two men. Both needed to push as hard as they could, corner after corner. Sometimes you don't need to overtake each other to have a great on-track battle, and this was one of them. With so much at stake, one small mistake would throw the championship either way. At the second round of stops, Michael pitted first again. And as Mika got held up in traffic, Michael pushed as hard as he could. The tension was unbearable. It was all down to Mika's second stop. It was even quicker than Schumacher's. He came out in front and maintained the lead. After 67 gruelling laps, Mika Hakkinen crossed the line to win his 7th race of the year and claim a vital 10 points. Schumacher was 2nd, securing 6, 
meaning it was definitely going to Suzuka. Hakkinen on 90 points, Schumacher on 86. Kordaf, Coulthard rounded off the podium, Irvine was 4th, Frentzen was 5th, and Fisichella was 6th. This is regarded as one of Mika's best ever races. All the pressure was on him after such a rough period of the season after Germany to deliver, and he did brilliantly. In a straight fight, he beat Michael Schumacher. Pure racing between two amazing drivers fighting for the biggest prize in motorsport. And the best thing about this is that these two greatly respected each other. It's stuff like this that makes F1 so great. The teams that have had a whole five weeks to prepare for the Japanese Grand Prix, to test the cars, to improve their cars. At the famous Suzuka circuit, one man would leave as world champion. Who would it be? Suzuka has a habit of hosting championship deciding races, especially around this time. 1998 was no different. As I previously mentioned, there was a five-week gap between Luxembourg and Japan, which allowed both Ferrari and McLaren plenty of track time to improve their cars. Ferrari would clearly have the advantage, though, because they have their own private test track. The team were out testing practically every day. Michael said they needed to find a second but they weren't sure how much they'd made up. In qualifying, it was clear that the Ferrari and the McLaren were both equally as quick. In the final qualifying session of the year, Michael Schumacher took pole position for the third race in a row, with Hakkinen second and Coulthard third. On race day, it was time for business. On the grid, both men shook hands. You just wouldn't get that these days. All the preparation, all the speculation, it was race time. Who would be crown champion? The lights were coming on. Everyone ready? But no. The start was aborted due to Trulli stalling his car. He was sent to the back of the grid for his trouble. The teams prepared for the restart. Their nerves were on a knife edge. As the cars came round for the restart, everything seemed fine. But then it was aborted again. Who had a problem now? It was Michael Schumacher. In utter disbelief, he raised his hand and shook his head. Championship contender Michael Schumacher now had to start the race from the back of the grid. On the third restart, Hakkinen led the field, but all eyes were on Michael. He climbed to 7th place by lap 4 after taking position after position with ease. He then got stuck behind Damon Hill who was embroiled in a battle with Villeneuve. After, he, after Damon died for the pits, Michael passed Villeneuve easily for 5th. Meanwhile up front, Hakkinen made his pit stop and maintained his lead over Irvine. It looked easy for the Finn now, but it was not over yet. Michael was pushing like a madman, setting fastest lap after fastest lap. He would then come across a collision between Twero and Takagi at the final chicane, where debris had been sent everywhere. He passed the crashed cars just fine, but as he got close to his teammate in second before turn one at high speed, his right rear tyre exploded. His race was over, and Mecha Hakkinen was 1998 Formula One World Champion.
Michael pulled his Ferrari off to the side of the track and sat on the trackside wall. He had done everything he could, but it just wasn't to be. Hakkinen drove comfortably on to win the race from Irvine and Coulthard. But on the last lap, Hill dived down the inside of Frentzen at the last corner to secure fourth in the Constructors' Championship for Jordan. Considering they had no points heading into Silverstone, that is an incredible achievement. But the day, in fact, the season, belonged to Hakkinen. He'd done it. After his near-fatal injury, after his near-fatal crash in Australia in 1995, to basically being given his first win the year prior as a gift, he was now champion of the world. It was after an amazing season-long battle between himself and Michael, who, as you'd expect, was the first person to congratulate Mecca in Park Ferme. A class act. The championship ended like this. Hakkinen on 100 points, Michael Schumacher on 86, David Coulthard on 56, Eddie Irvine on 47, and Jack Villeneuve on 21. I would list everyone, but would be here all day. The constructors ended with McLaren on 156 points, Ferrari on 133, Williams on 38, Jordan on 34, and Benetton on 33. Damon's move at the end really did prove vital. So what happened after 1998? In short, Hakkinen would win a second title the following year, Schumacher would break his leg at Silverstone, but then go on to secure five world titles, but those are stories for another time. Looking back, having done extensive research and written over 9,000 words for this episode, to put that into perspective, my university dissertation was 11,000. I would say that this is my favorite season that I've ever watched. It has everything I love about Formula One wrapped up in one. Amazing races, amazing individual performances, amazing moments in time. But the thing I love the most about 1998 is the rivalry between Mecca and Michael. No bad feelings, no bad words, just two amazing racing drivers fighting it out. And with Sebastian Vettel and Lewis Hamilton seemingly embroiled in a similar battle for the 2017 world title, people need to remember that this isn't the first time a great rivalry made out of respect has taken place. Schumacher and Hakkinen, for me anyway, have the finest chapter in that book. This episode of F1 Everything was written and created by me, Rob. Thank you so much for listening to this. I do hope you've enjoyed it. You'll find this episode and other episodes of the show on both iTunes and SoundCloud. Please subscribe and leave a rating and a review. It helps me out massively. I would love for this podcast to reach as many people as possible. So if you know someone who might enjoy it, please recommend it. And also don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at F1 double underscore everything. I'm Rob Manifield. Thank you for listening. And I'll see you around the next corner.